this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talked to Tim Noitkins about how to build server-rendered client-side React applications with Next.js. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 99. Hey everyone, before we get into the interview with Tim today, just a couple pieces of news to share. So the first one is that Rollbar, uh, one of our sponsors, is running a really interesting promotion right now where if you head over to rollbar.com slash fullstackradio and sign up for an account and install Rollbar into your app, they'll actually send you a $100 gift card to use at Open Collective, which is a great project where you can donate that money to any of the open source projects listed there that you use and love and want to support. So definitely head over to rollbar.com slash fullstackradio, sign up and try Rollbar out in your app if you're interested in being able to donate a free $100 to any of the projects you love using. Second of all, I'm going to be speaking at ViewConf Toronto here locally in uh, Toronto, Ontario on November 14th through 16th. And the organizers of the conference have been kind enough to give me a special discount code that you can use to purchase a ticket at a reduced cost if you're interested in attending the conference. It's going to be an awesome conference. Lots of big name people in the VIEW community are going to be there. Uh, So if you're interested in grabbing a ticket, head over to ViewToronto.com. And when you go to checkout, use the coupon code ADVANCEDVIEW, all one word, uppercase, to save a bunch of money on your conference ticket. Uh, That's everything. So now let's dive right into the interview with Tim. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Wathen, and today it's my pleasure to be speaking with Tim Noitkins. How's it going, Tim? Hey, it's going well. So, um, for anybody who's not familiar with you, do you mind just briefly introducing yourself and talking a little bit about what you do? Sure, yeah. Um, I'm the lead maintainer of Next.js, which is a React framework for uh, pretty much any uh, React application that you want to build. So, for example, uh, server-rendered web applications, uh, static websites, uh, that kind of thing. Um, And it makes development using React very easy. Cool. I know you also work on uh, MDX too, right? Which is a a pretty cool project. which is uh, a markdown parser that allows you to use uh, React components or a few components intrinsically um, inside of markdown. So... What it allows you to do is uh, just like write a really, a really easy write blog posts or documentation using uh, Markdown, and then also include dynamic parts that you built in your application. Um, for example, like graphs or like interactive components, anything, anything really that you yeah. want to build. Really cool. Cool. So uh, the reason that I want to have you on the show is because I've been sort of interested in uh, tools like Next.js and Nuxt.js and Vue from sort of the, the outside, but haven't actually had a chance to play with any of it. And I thought it'd be cool to sort of get a, an introduction to it from someone who obviously knows the project really well and try to sort of set up you know, the right expectations about when you actually use it, what it's actually for, understanding like why it's different than trying to build something yourself or what sort of features it comes with. Just so I feel like I have sort of a, a better mental model of what I'm kind of getting myself into if I wanted to start working on, you know, building a project with Next.js. Um, so you talked about it a little bit already, um, but how would you kind of like describe like what Next.js is, especially in comparison compared to maybe like the default project structure that you would get using create react app for example right so um the main difference with create react app is that Next.js is a little bit more prescriptive but also implements more uh features and it allows you to break out of those uh, features also but um the way it works is you create a directory called pages and in that pages directory every file that you create there is around so uh, for example, if you use PHP, uh, you create uh, usually when you start a PHP project, you create an index of PHP or something uh, when you're not using any framework. Um, and that just works. It renders HTML and that's it, right? Um, that's basically the feel that you get with Next.js 2 because you create a pages directory, you put an index.js instead of PHP, uh, you export a React component, and it just works. Like it will automatically compile the React component to uh, just JavaScript code and then render it on the server side, but also on the client side. Okay, so that 
you would sort of say is the main selling point, I guess, like that is like the big opinion that next kind of has is this sort of file system based approach to routing instead of like having a, a file where you're sort of defining routes, like maybe you would if you were using like react router or something manually. Right. Um, in that sense, it also uh, does automatic code splitting because every route that you make is a new code splitting entry point, mm-hmm. uh, which, for example, if you build a single page application, like uh, if you do, um, if you use Create React App, you're probably building a single page application, which uh, means that you're shipping all the code that you write for every page possible in one bundle. So Next.js also immediately allows you to do code splitting based on routes. Uh, which means that you're only shipping the code needed for one page nice. instead of every possible page in the whole universe, basically. So sort of just by following the project structure that's laid out for you, you get this code splitting for free and you don't have to manually try and configure yeah, exactly. things to make it as efficient as possible. Very cool. So when the stuff that you're putting in these uh, in the, your pages directory that you're putting in individual files. Like I'm checking out the Next.js website right now and um, kind of just on the, the main homepage, the example they use is like uh, creating a file like about.js in the pages directory. That's going to be the page that's rendered at, you know, yourapp.com slash about. Um, so is are these just regular old React components or is there some anything special about them? that's different from like how a regular React component would work or are they enhanced like in any way or anything like that? Yeah, so um, in every sense of the word, it's like just a React component. But um, for uh, fetching data on the server and on the client side, we uh, introduced a new lifecycle method, which is called get initial props. Okay, so, so maybe before we get into that, we should probably address the fact that one of the f- other features of Next.js, as far as I understand it, is it tries to make like server-side rendering of your application really easy, right? Yes. So if you create just a React component in the page directory and you go to, uh, for example, slash about, uh, that React component will already be server-rendered out of the box. So you won't have that situation that you typically have with like a client-side application if you just visit the page for the first time, it sort of has to wait for the JavaScript runtime to sort of spin up, find the DOM node that you're mounting the component to, determine exactly what to actually render there and yes. put it there after the fact. All the HTML is already there. Like if you were to right click on the page and view source, you're gonna see like what the server actually sent was the rendered React component with all its props transformed into whatever presentation you wanted that to kind of show up as. Yes, exactly. And what it also means is that your app uh, first paint is way faster than when you uh, ship a bundle of JavaScript and that renders first. Because uh, the browser just has to render the HTML and then you get the first paint already. And then uh, the page becomes progressively enhanced using JavaScript, basically. So um, I'm kind of curious about the the mechanics of, of how that actually works um, so like if you have something that's server rendered, so you render the React component, you figure out what its initial output should be based on what its first set of props are, you render that into the static HTML that's sent from the server. When right. React picks that up again, like on the client side, is it like rendered again or is it only rendered again the sort of like the first time the props change? Right. So the way it works is that React has a, a method on React DOM, which is called hydrate. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first render that you do, if you serve a render and then send it to the client side, um, so you send the HTML to the client side and the JavaScript bundles, the moment the JavaScript bundle is loaded, um, we call this method called hydrate, which uh, traverses the React tree, then sees if it's already it already has this like HTML structure. And if there's no changes, it doesn't apply a new React update. It just instantiates the whole tree, basically. So it adds the um, on-click methods and that kind of stuff. So where is React sort of getting its copy of the initial props on the client side that were used to generate the HTML on the server side? Right, so that's where um, get initial props comes in 
which is a lifecycle method we invented to do um, fetching of data from any data source, uh, which its output is always a uh, JavaScript object that can be serialized to JSON. Um, and that uh, object is serialized to JSON in the initial HTML output. And then that's used to instantiate React on the client side. Got it. So if you were to view source, you would see somewhere in there, like near where the co your component is or whatever, uh, like a serialized version of everything that was used on the server so that the client sort of has its own copy of it and can use that to create yes. its initial state. Yeah, the initial props. Got it. Okay. So, so what does it look like to use this lifecycle method, like when you're authoring a page? So it's like a new method that goes on to every one of your React components that lives in the pages directory at least so you can sort of think of these pages as like they're they're almost like a little bit supercharged react components in some way right like they have this initial life cycle yeah, method that a, a normal react component would would completely ignore um but because of how next works this is going to get called during i guess like the build process and or if you're well i mean maybe that's actually something to talk about first is with the server-side rendering is it, um, is it just like you have like a build command, like next build site or something, and that uh, calls this get initial props method on every single one of your pages and figures it out and renders it into static HTML and that's the end of it? Or is it like served dynamically so that every time someone fetches a page fresh, it's going to reprocess that on the fly? Right, so in Next.js, you have two pre-rendering modes. We call this pre-rendering because uh, we pre-render the HTML mm -hmm. for uh, um, And there's two modes, which is uh, dynamic. So you dynamically, you run a Node.js server uh, and that dynamically handles your requests. So every time a request comes in, it calls get initial props and executes it and then renders React. Uh, which is really great for dynamic websites if you have a lot of like updating content and uh, pretty much anything that is very dynamic. Um, and then there's uh, static exporting, which means that you run a command next export, which uh, at build time exports all the possible pages that you have into static HTML. Got it. Okay, so it, in my head, I'm sort of thinking those two modes um, you would sort of choose between one or the other sort of based on on the project, I guess, right? If you're building something where every user is going to see the same initial content for every page, then it would make sense to just use the static pre-render approach because it's probably yes. faster and stuff like so that. So the main difference is that um, if you're deciding something like, I'm building a dashboard. Uh, it's very dynamic. Uh, every user has his own page. Um, they can log in and they can like update things. Uh, for example, at site, um, we have site.co slash dashboard, which is completely dynamic and specifically every user and every user has different data. Um, that means that it has to be a dynamic application, of course. Mm -hmm. In uh, and then we have z.co slash docs or z.co slash blog, which both are very static websites, basically. Uh, so those are exported as static HTML uh, separately and served as just static HTML. That's interesting. So you can sort of mix both approaches on one project to sort of optimize the performance. You know, like if there's no point at yeah. all in dynamically rendering this page on the server every single time, because it's exactly the same for everyone, you can, there's a way to configure that one to be served statically, whereas other pages, you could have the Node.js server running the get initial props method fresh, like on every call. Yes. Yeah, so um, there's basically two ways to implement this. Uh, the first is that you can do like build the project and then export it as static HTML. Another is that you could implement caching in the uh, server of Next.js. Mm -hmm. So you don't do uh, explicitly like export at that point uh, in time when you're building, but you could also do like an LRU cache, which means that you have a specific time limit or like a cache control limit that uh, for when it expires and it re-renders. Um, the other approach is uh, using a zone, a feature that we introduced 
in Next5, which allows you to like split out multiple applications, uh, split out one project in multiple applications, and then export just that one application, which is the block or the docs, and then have uh, the dashboard be a totally different application. Got it. Okay, so I think maybe it would be a good time to talk a little bit about this this get initial props method more now that we sort of understand the pieces around it and like why it exists um, and stuff like that. So, so what sort of stuff are you, are you normally doing inside um, get initial props? Like, do, does it do you get past any information that you can use to make decisions about things, or what what does it kind of look like? Yeah, so. Uh, it's a static method on the top-level component, so on the pages uh, inside your pages directory. Uh, so you can create a React uh, class. So you do a class something extends React.component. Uh, and then it's just a normal React component. The only difference is that you can implement the static method uh, called getInitialProps. Um, and that get, uh, gets passed in the um, request response on the server side, but also uh, the current path, the query string, uh, the parse query string in a sense, um, and also some other helpful things. Um, and what you usually implement there is, for example, your um, for server-side rendering Apollo, uh, for example, if you do GraphQL, you can implement Apollo there uh, for server-side rendering, um, but also you can just fetch some external data source because it's an asynchronous method, so you can use promises uh, in there and just awaits that method and then start rendering the page. Would it ever make sense to, I guess something I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around is when you're using Next.js and you're sort of using it as like, it's almost like a server-side and client-side application at the same time in some ways, would you ever be doing something in get initial props where you're like fetching something from a database or something directly, almost like you were writing a node app, or is it sort of expected that everything is going to be like HTTP calls, stuff that you could do on the client if you needed to? Right. So um, you, in theory, you could do like database fetches uh, on the server-side version of props because the way it works is we... Um, we call get initial props on server side rendering. So the moment you do a request, it calls get initial props, then renders the page using React. And mm-hmm. um, then if you if the client side is loaded, you have a new component called next link, uh, which is a client side transition of a page. So you can okay. link to other pages using next link, uh, and that executes get initial props on the client side. Okay, got it. So. You'd have to do write some sort of logic inside get initial props. I'm assuming using parameters that get passed to you um, to sort of determine like are we on the client or are we on the server and make different decisions about how you get yes. that data. And the the easy way to do that is um, by doing, uh, for example, uh, have an external API instead of like doing database calls. You build an API for your application. And then just make Next.js the front end, even if it serves at rendering, mm-hmm. uh, because it allows you the flexibility to scale up your APIs in your database yeah. without intervention. So it's a stupid idea to make database calls and so I get initial props, probably. But in theory, you could do it. That's kind of like what I'm taking away from this. Sort of, <laughs> yes. Um, so... Yeah, the the stuff you kind of briefly talked about with the the next link stuff was actually something I was going to ask you about. Um to just try and really properly understand exactly like what the difference is between uh a new page loading once the JavaScript environment is already there. Like after first page load and you're navigating to a new page, what's different about that versus just like hitting that page directly by just typing in the URL and getting in it as a um as a fresh request so i don't even know like what my question is really i guess i'm just trying to understand like what you need to know about what that the or what the differences is. are yeah yeah so uh the way it works is the first request to do uh to the server side uh, the next yes server will call get initial props on that um component that you're rendering so you're a page um then it's uh, sent to the client side and if that page implements next link, so it links to another page, uh, which is 
the way it works is it's basically a link component, a React component, that has a href to another page. Um, inside there is an a tag, so just like a normal a tag. Uh, that's for like if you serve a render, it will immediately have the right uh, href on the a tag. Uh, so if the JavaScript is not initted or anything, uh, you can just click on that link and it will do a full page transition, like go to the next page. Yeah. Um, but when the JavaScript is loaded, that's when we enhance the link tag uh, with an uh, on-click, basically. And then we call our next router, which then calls uh, get initial props on the client side, and then uh, wait, wait for the uh, request to finish, and then yep. start rendering on the client side. Got it. And the main difference in that sense is that you can have, for example, uh, if you have a global uh state for example if someone is logged in and you uh you can keep that logged in state and this user object in the in a global store instead of having to refetch it every time you do a server-side rendering request for example got it so um so what does it sort of look like to make different decisions inside the get initial props lifecycle method um, you know, when you, you know you're on the server versus knowing that you're on the client. Right. So um, there's an object passed into as an argument in get initial props, which holds a request and a response and the current router position, basically. That request and response is only available on the server side because uh, it's the Node.js request and response. So if you check for if request is not there, that's when you know you're on the, on the client side. Got it. But would you still receive like information about the query string or dynamic yes. route segments and stuff like that? Yes, you still get the query string and the current path name and that kind of thing. Yeah. Got it. Um, so that actually leads me to another question that I have. If if everything is like file system based routing, where you just have like a JavaScript file for each page, what does it look like to create applications where the pages are dynamic you know where you you're going to like twitter.com slash adam wathen there's not going to be an adam wathen.js file in a pages directory uh somewhere because it's purely dynamic so what does it look like to do that sort of stuff with next right so the way that works is that you can implement uh, a custom server um which is uh basically you can use any uh server framework for node.js together with next.js because Next allows you to render any page on any route. So what that means is if you use Express, you can create a route called uh, slash, uh, for example, if you use Twitter, uh, slash profile, slash Adam Wetton, um, and then, uh, or, or what I mean is slash profile, slash uh, colon, um, user, user slug or, or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then once you do that, you can uh, pass that parameter as a query string to Next.js. Uh, and then use that in get initial props to fetch the user that you want to fetch, basically. Got it. So you provide, uh, you basically route that route to um, slash pages slash uh, profile.js with the query string uh, user slug. Got it. So does Next.js like provide any sort of like built-in a uh, kind of simple version of a server if you wanted to do like the dynamic uh, sort of pre-rendering or is it expected that you're always sort of creating an express app and sort of coding up that initial stuff yourself and passing that off to next and, and what does it actually look like to sort of pass stuff off to next inside of like an express route like does next like export some stuff to you that you can use yes, to tell so it to method. like render this file or whatever yeah it's a few methods that um for example it's called uh you instantiate next uh this, the next uh, rendering engine basically which uh has a method called render so you pass in a request response and then the page that you want to render and the query string um and to answer your other question uh i want to do dynamic routing but um, I don't want to create a custom server, basically, or I want to do it in an easier way. Yeah, uh, that's something that we're uh, currently working on. 
which is most likely going to look like uh, in the pages directory, you will be able to create um, a folder called, for example, profile, and then uh, create a colon or underscore um, user slug.js. And then Next.js will automatically pick up that uh, specific route as being a dynamic route that automatically injects the uh, slug there. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Rollbar. So there are two major problems with relying on your users to submit bug reports to you when they find something broken in your app. Number one, you can't discover all bugs this way. And number two, some users don't even bother submitting bug reports. They just wait for you to fix it, and if you don't, they just leave the service. Now, the best software teams practice proactive error monitoring, which means you detect all the errors in your production apps and services in real time, and then you can debug important errors in minutes or hours, often before your users even notice. Uh, teams from big companies you might have heard of like Twilio, CircleCI, Instacart, they use Rollbar to do this. With Rollbar, you get a real-time feed of all your errors so you know exactly what's broken in production, and Rollbar automatically collects all the relevant data and metadata you need to debug those errors so you don't have to waste time sifting through logs. Debugging errors with Rollbar is crazy fast. You get the exact stack trace linked directly into your code base, the request parameters to easily reproduce the issue yourself, a data on which user is affected so you know if it's the same user repeating the same error again, what browser and operating system, basically everything you need all in one place. They also have this awesome telemetry feature that's kind of like getting a black box recorder after a crash but for errors. It shows you all the browser events leading up to that error. Uh, so if you aren't using Rollbar already, there's a special offer just for full stack radio listeners head over to rollbar.com slash full stack radio and you'll be able to sign up for their bootstrap plan for three months for free which would normally be 147 bucks so you save a bunch of money and get to really test out the service so thanks a ton to rollbar for sponsoring full stack radio back to the show what sort of other things do you need to know about next or are you going to run into pretty fast when you start working with it that you might not uh anticipate or that you need to learn so like i'm looking through the documentation for example and one thing that i I never would have really thought about but i guess there's some interesting elements to it is there's a section in the docs on like populating the head section of of a page and changing that dynamically and stuff i guess um so so what is there to know about that like how does that work and what sort of other things does next provide that you're going to run into commonly um, when you're building an application that you need to sort of learn and understand right so um service rendering uh, complexifies some things like uh, how do i update the head if i uh sort of render that head also so uh, we have next slash head to implement um like updates to the head uh, element uh, but also we provide a next slash dynamic, which is for dynamically uh, code splitting some specific uh, libraries out into their own bundle. Uh, and that also implements the whole server-side rendering structure because it's pretty complex to uh, like server render one, uh, server render dynamic bundles if the bundles also code split out. Um, so for example, in Webpack, you, have, uh, you can use imports to create a new bundle. Um, and that new bundle is then uh, it's just an, another script tag, basically. Uh, if you only do client-side rendering, that means that you load the page and then that uh, JavaScript is injected into the page. Yeah. Uh, new bundle. But the thing is, uh, if you want to speed that up because you're server rendering and you already know that that specific bundle is needed to load the page and do uh, the first paint of JavaScript, basically, uh, that's where it gets really complex because you need to know exactly what has been rendered uh, and then inject that specific script tag uh, on the service that rendering response. Uh, and Access automatically handles that for you. You don't have to do anything but use uh, next slash dynamic to do that. Got it. Okay, so I'm going to try and say some of that back to you to make sure that we're on the same page and that I'm understanding. So you're sort of saying like, if you're in a situation where you want to dynamically split out some JavaScript that you want to load separately for one reason or another because it's some vendor JavaScript that needs to run after the page is there or, or something like that, then in like a fully client-side situation, you couldn't actually load that JavaScript until React kind of like 
comes to life and renders the whole page and then there's some react code that basically says oh by the way you need this other script tag then that gets injected then the browser goes and asks for that and then that gets to run whereas in a a lot of situations it's it it'd be more performant at least if you could just like have all the script tags that you need to load kind of make the browser aware of those right at the beginning instead of kind of dynamically adding them after the javascript sort of runtime has done its first paint Yes, exactly. So, um, like the best example of this is when you want to like implement some layout, but only uh, render that layout when the uh, when you have a specific property on the component. So, for example, you have layout one, layout two, and then based on the property like team or something, um, you render one component or the other. So, what next slash dynamic? allows you to do is create those two components as dynamic components. And then uh, only if like layout one is rendered, that layout one JavaScript bundle is loaded. So only that code is loaded at that point. Instead of like if you use normal imports, uh, it will bundle both of those teams into uh, both of those layouts into one bundle, which is the page bundle. Because you don't know which one you're going to need until it's too late, basically, to to make the bundle smaller, right? Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. So, and also, what it allows you to do is like only load code on the client side or only load code on the server side. So it has an SSR false property. If you set that, it only renders on the client side. Okay. Interesting. So, um, kind of getting back to the the first part of this conversation, we were talking about like the the populating stuff in the head, for example. One thing I didn't even think to ask is um, sort of what the initial HTML sort of boilerplate is that your pages are kind of getting rendered into because like of course you're not writing a react component in one of your page files that renders like the HTML tag the head tag the body tag like you're sort of there's an assumption that you're already in the body tag somewhere right so is it just like a top level div or something in the body tag that everything is getting mounted to yeah, so we use the best practice from React, which is that you create a div tag inside of the body, which is uh, called underscore underscore next uh, mm-hmm. with an ID. Um, and that's where React is rendered in, um, on the server side and on the client side. So that explains um, why if you wanted to change the page title or something, there's no real straightforward way to to do that without next providing you some tooling to do it because you don't have control yeah. over rendering that part of the page. Yes, um, I should add that you can have control over rendering the boilerplate that is like wrapping the um, pages itself on server-side rendering, which is underscore document.js, which is a special page that uh, defines like the, the HTML tag, the body tag, the head tag, um, and the scripts that Next uses to load your page, which is the page bundles, basically. Got it. So... Uh, looking at the docs here, it looks like the way the head stuff works, you are importing like a React component from Next called head um, that basically lets you put the contents that you would normally put in a real head tag, uh, just like all those HTML tags, like your title, your meta tags and stuff like that. You just drop them in there and it sort of just transports all that content up to where it should actually go and doesn't render it like where you've actually yeah. put it. Yeah, that's correct. And does that work like, are you always like replacing the full contents of what's in the head tag or is it intelligently merging them or, or how does that work? Um, if you switch pages, it uh, flushes the text that have been added from one page and adds the new text from another page. And if you wanted to replace a tag, like say you were changing a meta tag or something and it was maybe already there on the previous page, what would you do to make sure that it uh, does will like- be updated automatically? Okay. So, um, as long as it's as long as the name matches or something. Yeah, exactly. If it's the same element, uh, it will just update the meta text. Very cool. So, I mean, maybe something that would be interesting to talk about now is like you were saying um, uh, either before the call or maybe right when we started that recently, like Next Seven was just released. Um, right. So. So what is kind of new uh, with Next? What sort of problems are you solving with it uh, these days? 
So uh, we've been very focused on improving performance and uh, just speeding up compilation in uh, every sense of the word. So um, one thing that we've been very uh, focused on is that we wanted to faster boot up uh, your development environment. So if you uh, start working on a project, uh, you usually, if you like, use create, create React app or use uh, pretty much anything else, or use Webpack just for your project, uh, what you'll see is that if you have like 100 pages or 100, uh, maybe a thousand components or something, it will slow down uh, the initial boot up. Meaning that if you boot up Webpack and it and you you usually have to wait for uh, all those components to compile because Webpack compiles everything possible, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, in Next.js, what we do is we only compile the page that you're working on. So if you go to uh, Next.js, uh, for example, I'm working on the Next.js website and I go to the homepage, it's not compiling the block and it's not compiling the showcase. But at first boot up, it's just compiling like the base stuff for Next.js. Okay. And then the rest is compiled on demand when oh, you go to cool. the page. So it's not until you actually visit one of those pages that it does the work to to compile it. I, I guess like what the question I have regarding this that we didn't really talk about is like just a development sort of a experience in general. Like we talked about how you have to write like your own custom node server, like your little your small little express server to kind of get things going in production and stuff. Um, but it sounds like you don't have to do that in in development necessarily, like unless you're doing um, custom stuff in like the node server. Yeah, you don't have to uh, write any node server if you just uh, use next to space routing, which is just the file system routing. Uh, but if you want to break out of it, we allow you to break out of it. That's uh, basically how it works. But um, we've been very focused on the whole developer experience. And uh, for example, you don't have to implement Webpack. You don't have to implement Babel. Uh, we all do that for you to hot module replacement. So if you make any change, it's automatically propagated to the page while you're watching it. Um, yeah, we're currently very focused on making it even faster. So uh, basically, if you're working on a project and you have to wait a long time for something to compile, uh, it slows you down in your uh, ability to like provide, build new features. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, cool. So, I mean, I don't know if I have any more uh, specific questions about uh, Next.js. I mean, maybe one question would be like, uh, you talk about how it's like fairly customizable and stuff. Like one of the biggest challenges, I guess, with projects that are trying to take something like building a React app where there's all these decisions that you have to make, you have to choose how you're, how you're going to do everything. And, you know, every team builds things in like a totally different way. You're trying to sort of standardize things to a degree right where it's like we have like what we think is a good way to do it. it helps you hit the ground running a lot faster there's more like conventions and and opinions built into it um one of the biggest challenges there is trying not to make things over opinionated to the point where people can't do something that they need to do in their specific case because you maybe didn't anticipate the need to customize it in a certain way or, or something like that. Um, so what sort of challenges have, have you run into there? What sort of things are people commonly needing to, to customize and how does Next um, you know, try to uh, accommodate those sorts of needs? Right. So a good example of that is that, um, for example, we allow you to uh, customize the Webpack config if you want to. Uh, using a special file called next.config.js, which uh, holds all the specific options that you can customize in Next.js, uh, which is just a few because we don't want to like make everything customizable or make uh, like the core decisions that we made for scalable web applications uh, customizable. But uh, you can break out using Webpack. Uh, you can extend the Webpack config. You can create a custom Babel RC, so you can add specific Babel plugins if you want to. Um, we have a examples directory inside of Next.js. It's currently like at 150 or 160 examples contributed wow. by the community. Um, 
And those are for basically anything. If you want to implement Apollo or if you want to implement Stealth components uh, as a styling solution, um, that's all there. So you can use it immediately. Yeah, that's awesome. So, I mean, one other question that I have that I think would be interesting to sort of get into, because I think it helps people sort of understand the use case for Next.js maybe is, are there situations for you personally where you're building uh, an application with React where you would not use Next.js? Um, there's currently one uh, one uh, one use case that isn't supported by Next.js, which is the use case uh, where you don't want to server render, you don't want to pre-render. So, for example, you have an existing website uh, and you want to, uh, for example, implement just one part of a page with React. Um, that's for Next.js. Uh, that's what Next.js can't really do because uh, we can't embed Next.js inside one, like in another uh, page, basically. Got it. Uh, in every other case, uh, it's usually a good fit. If you like want to build a scalable web application or you want to uh, start rewriting your application in, in uh, React, but only for specific parts of your website. Uh, for example, we're working with companies that um, are, scaling, are at a very large scale. They have a giant monolith uh, application. And they wanted to switch to React and make everything like work with GraphQL and um, render very fast and all that kind of things. Um, they started using zones to just split out, like just start with the login page. Then they changed the login page from PHP to Next.js uh, and then just scale that up into the rest of the website. So I don't, I don't think we're really talking about zones so far what are zones and in, in next.js right so uh, what zones are is basically a way to uh, have multiple next.js applications or multiple uh, or have next.js applications in specific parts of your website and not the rest of the website so it allows you to um, work on specific projects or like split out one project into multiple projects is the idea basically just so that like maybe a certain path on your site would be served with next instead of having next like control the whole domain basically yeah quickly so you can for example like start by implementing your login page or your blog or like for example you can have your uh, old php application run the whole domain and then only have your blog in xcs for example but also have multiple Next.js applications on the same domain on different parts cool and what does it look like to to set that up? Is that the, something that you're like configuring in Next, or, or is it more stuff you're configuring with Nginx, or you know, however you have your server kind of set up? Uh, it's a combination. So you have to configure a few things in Next.js, which are config options, uh, specifically like implementing the asset prefix it's called, um, so that the right uh, files are served from the right domain or the right uh, parts, basically. And then inside of, it depends on what you're uh, using for your hosting solution, but uh, for example, now you can use uh, the rules.json, which is uh, a proxy configuration. And if you use Nginx, uh, it's called proxy pass. Yep. Um, so you have to configure that also just uh, because uh, Next.js can't, uh, can't be a proxy itself. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Cloudinary. So if I had to describe Cloudinary myself, it's basically just the best way to store and serve images that I've ever seen. In the past, I used to use generic storage services like Amazon S3 to store and serve images, uh, but after switching to Cloudinary, I genuinely cannot believe I ever did this stuff any other way. Uh, so here's one example of how Cloudinary has made my life easier. Uh, so you probably know that typically images are the heaviest 
resource your users have to download when they visit your site, right? Usually way more than your JavaScript or CSS. So in the past, I would spend a lot of time tweaking settings and tools like Image Alpha and Image Optim to try and optimize my image files so they weren't as large. Uh, with Cloudinary, I can just upload the full resolution file without even really thinking about it. And then by just adding a parameter to the image URL that I get back, uh, when I go to serve it on my site, Cloudinary will automatically optimize that image as best as it can, usually resulting in file sizes that are actually lower than what I was seeing when trying to optimize the images by hand. Uh, this is even more useful for like user uploaded images because instead of trying to do some fancy automatic image optimization in a background job on my own server or something, I can just send those images directly to Cloudinary from the browser, I request the optimized version back by adding that URL parameter and bam, I've got an optimized image at a really small file size. Uh, so there's an enormous amount of other cool stuff that you can do through the URL based API. That's really just scratching the surface, but you can do stuff like request images at different sizes so you can serve smaller images on mobile devices so you're not wasting bandwidth. Uh, you can crop images to different dimensions. You can crop images using face detection, so just crop to the faces in an image. Uh, you can automatically add watermarks or text overlays or tons of different effects and stuff like that. It's a seriously impressive service. So Cloudinary has an amazing free plan where you can store 300,000 images and videos. Yeah, did I mention you can do all this crazy stuff, not just with images, but also with videos too. Uh, you get 10 gigabytes of storage and 20 gigabytes of a monthly bandwidth on this free plan. Uh, so if you're not already using them, definitely head over to cloudinary.com and check it out. It really is one of my absolute favorite services that I use on my own projects. Thanks a ton to Cloudinary for sponsoring this episode. Back to the show. So actually one more question that kind of jumps back to something we were talking about before, but I'm trying to make sure that I, I feel like I know everything I would need to know if I wanted to start working on, on a next app and not be totally confused is we talking about like the dynamic route sort of idea from a server side perspective in terms of how you would uh, basically do a little bit of logic in your express server to say, Hey, next we want to render uh, this component. Here's like the dynamic part of the request that you can use to determine what you need to do, that sort of thing. Um, but but how does that translate to the client side when you're already on like the client side app and you're clicking on a link that would have needed to do like a dynamic, that has a dynamic right. route segment? Right, so there's two ways to do this, which is um, the first is basically that you can use uh, the default ways you have href and href will uh, reference the page. So say you go to slash about, it reference slash about, and then also the query string that is needed to render the page. And then you have a specific property called uh, s, which is a different part, which can be any part. Uh, and the router will update to the browser URL using the s part. And then the href is used to go to that specific page that you specified. Got it. So in the example we were talking about before, where you were going to view like someone's Twitter profile or something, you might have like href is slash users question mark username equals Adam Wathen and then as slash Adam Wathen. Yes, exactly. And is that using a, a special component to do that? Or are you just using a regular anchor tag? Uh, you use the link tag. So it's still the link tag that you used before, but you... In addition to href, you also add the s uh, property. Got it. So that's just an optional property that will override um, the URL. So the href is always going to be like the actual file in the pages directory that you want it to use. And as is just sort of like for presentational purposes. Yes, exactly. Got it. So yeah, that's what's uh, pushed into the history of the browser basically. Cool, man. So I think that is probably all the questions that I have. Um, is there any other interesting parts of Next.js that you think are worth um, talking about to, to people who have never used it before that are curious about getting started with it? Uh, yeah, it's probably good to mention that we have a really great uh, introduction tutorial, which is called uh, Next.js.org slash learn. Okay. So go there, uh, you get a really deep intro into Next.js works and how uh, all the features uh, work together uh, and some of the reasoning behind them also. Um, and it's an interactive guide. So you uh, basically read something and then you also have a quiz to like 
verify if your knowledge oh, is cool. correct. Yeah, so that's really cool. Um, and also, yeah, the Next.js doc documentation and uh, yeah, Learn Next.js is very it goes very deep into like all the features that we talked about, but also uh, other things. Awesome, man. Well, I think that's that's basically everything. Then, um, are there any other uh, resources or anything that you wanted to recommend uh, people check out if they want to learn more about Next? No, I think the Next.js is very complete in that sense. Uh, it's built by us, also. Perfect. Uh, we are maintaining it. We're currently working on updating uh, it also to uh, allow external contribution. So uh, other people will be able to uh, help with extending the uh, content that is on there. Uh, so yeah, that's very exciting. And we have a lot of examples on how to basically do anything. So on the GitHub of Next.js, uh, there's an examples directory full of all kinds of examples. Cool. Well, I'll definitely include that link uh, in the show notes then. So, so what are the best ways for people to sort of keep up with you and what you're working on and what's what you're kind of doing with Next.js? Right. So we recently reintroduced, uh, with the launch of Next7, we uh, reintroduced the Next.js.org website, which now also has a blog section, uh, which holds the uh, blog, uh, the announcements of new uh, Next.js versions. But we're also planning on uh, including some community experts and uh, other things there. Um, me personally, uh, you can find me on Twitter. Um, I tweet a lot about Next.js and uh, companies using it. Uh, there's a lot of adoption there. Uh, we currently have over 13,000 websites publicly wow. using Next.js. Crazy. Um, as far as we can index. So <laughs> uh, we, are not, we can't index uh, companies using it internally. Um, some of those companies are, for example, Netflix, GitHub, um, and also uh, Trulia, um, what else, Ticketmaster. Uh, yeah, it's a lot of companies. We have a showcase on XGS.org uh, with a very uh, high amount of very cool websites. So that's really cool to check out too. Awesome. Well, yeah, thanks so much for, for giving me your time and coming on and talking to me about Next.js today. Um, I learned a lot and I think I have a much better idea of like how it works and what it's for. And I'm actually really excited to, to give it a try. Okay, great. Happy to be here. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Tim Noykens about Next.js. Head over to fullstackradio.com slash 99 to check out the show notes. And thanks to Rollbar and Cloudinary for sponsoring the podcast this week. Thanks, everyone. See you next time.